much love. Love, love will tear us apart again. It's episode seven, season three of Ravage Love. Hi, Julie. Hey, Renee. How are you? It's hot goth week. It is my week. It is your week. This is really your time to shine. I'm really like as a middle-aged goth mom. Um, <laughs> it's just like I was. I was just counting down the weeks for this. No offense to Black History Month. This is it. <laughs> this is this it. Is this it. is your. This is your <laughs> moment. Um, and my understanding is, you had a busy week because you were on someone else's podcast. I was. On Friday, I was on Life to Labyrinth, which is a podcast where they listen to an album and then they just talk about it. And I um, picked, I offered, I suggested the Santa Gold album. What is it? Like Master of My Um, Make-Believe. Fantastic album. Yeah. Flawless. Like it's perfect in every way, in every way. Every song is great. It's produced and mastered beautifully. It's good. I listen to it like... Every month I, I'm, I'm listening to this album. So I'm really happy that they took my suggestion and I was really happy to be on it. I don't know when it's going to be released, but uh, when it is, I will um, like share it on Instagram so you guys can check it out. If for no other reason to, I don't know what they're cut out, but I did go on a whole, uh, you know, tangent about Celine Dion and her amazing uh, clothing line. Nothing oh. to do with Santa Gold. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, I'm always here to stand, Céline Dion, clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, like, is the start of La Semaine de la Francophonie, so Why? truly here for it. And yeah, Santa Gold's Master of My Make-Believe is one of the most perfect albums you'll ever listen to, down to the album art. Every song feels totally different, and yet it's all cohesive somehow. She's brilliant and underappreciated, and thank you for repping her, because it's oh. perfection. I she, like she will be in my obituary. That's how hard I will rap. Yeah. I'm a big fan. Big fan. Well, I need you to tell the people how the heck you got your hands on <laughs> the books that we read this week. Because as a hot goth, I'm not surprised that you got your hands on these gems, but you did. And I'm grateful for it. And the people need to know, Renee. <laughs> well, I guess last fall. Um, I can't believe I hadn't even like heard of this, but like the gothic romance novel is its own genre and it peaked in like 60s and 70s um, with like great covers, um, you know, just awesome. And I there's this um, person on Etsy that I love called Fugly Barbie and they have like a whole series of like sweaters and t-shirts and stuff of romance genres and they have this one where it's like this woman running away from a castle and it's like if she's not running away from a castle, is it even a gothic romance? And no truer words could be spoken about this genre. So I was determined to find some of these because, um, you know, we, we love pulp. We love pulp. Oh, love a pulp. Yes. And in my search, I learned about Dorothy Daniels, who's this prolific, prolific uh, gothic romance author. And um, I just hit up eBay. Girl, I hit up eBay and I... And I got a coupon from somebody that offered me a deal and I bought a whole stack of these books. Um, no idea what they were about, just that they were gothic romance from Dorothy Daniels. And then I sent you one. And I am grateful for it. So as you said, Dorothy Daniels was a prolific writer, just period, like prolific, wrote hundreds and hundreds of books over her life. 
Uh, but she wrote over 140 just gothic novels. So, like, damn. She wrote under various uh, pseudonyms. So, pseudonyms? Pseudonyms? These pseudonyms? Pseudonyms? C'est la semaine de la francophonie there, so I'm allowed. Uh, yeah, so she wrote under, like, very... I think there's, like, 12 or 15 different names that she had over the course of her career. And the, like you said, most of her books came, were written in the 60s and 70s. Go and check out our Instagram and our Twitter because we have the covers of the books posted there and they are majestic, like airbrushed looking paintings of like covers. They're just oh, so good. Um, what's interesting about Dorothy Daniels is there's a little bit of a controversy around her. And I think the controversy is born from misogyny, Ooh. namely because she was married to an author who was a man who was a known writer and so there is discussion on whether she wrote any of the books that she's accredited with or if her husband wrote them and like put it under her name to make her feel better um in an interview that her husband gave at one point he said something about like i provide input on her stories but you know they really are her stories and people are like mm, are they i'm giving oh dorothy God. daniels credit because, I mean, I'll be honest, if the books were terrible, I would say, like, yeah, just give them to her husband. But, <laughs> um, yeah, she wrote them. Um, and it's interesting that when women are, you know, partners with writers, there's their writing is always questioned. But, like, no one asks if he wrote any of the books that he's credited with writing. Um, yeah. Right? So it's like, hmm, maybe she that's, was the real writer in the family. That's very, like, Mary Shelley and, like... Mm -hmm. Uh, Shirley Jackson kind of mm. maybe it just runs in that gothic genre where like men are just dying to take credit for these spooky works that these incredible women are writing exactly because who knows horror better than women just living their lives absolutely absolutely like nobody knows the dark recesses of the human psyche more than women because we're mm -hmm. constantly navigating the dark psyches of men <laughs> in order yeah. to survive so i absolutely agree with you um i'm you have to check out dorothy daniels folks like just literally looking up her bibliography uh, is astounding the amount of books that she's written even on the inside of my mm -hmm. book they're like other d d books by dorothy daniels takes up like a page and a <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, and you yeah. can you can get dorothy daniels in libraries but also like a bunch of her books are on amazon as ebooks it's just i needed the cover but you oh. can get her stories online easy and it's worth it absolutely so Super i'm gonna launch good. i'm gonna launch into mine yeah mine was written in 1972 delightful cover it was called the larabee heiress and the subtitle that you can see on the cover is A Beautiful Young Amnesia Victim, A Luxurious Mansion Hiding a Deadly Secret, and Three Keys That Don't Fit Any Doors. <gasps> oh so our book opens with Sandra Larrabee, but she doesn't know she's Sandra Larrabee because she is a young woman, they suspect in her early 20s, who's recovering in hospital because she was walking down the sidewalk in Hollywood and a car jumped the curb and hit her and she now has amnesia. So she doesn't know who she is, doesn't know anything about herself, doesn't recognize anyone. 
And this mysterious woman, very, very well-dressed, comes to visit her in the hospital one day. And the beautiful woman recognizes the amnesia victim, but she's like, I don't know who this is. But all of a sudden, the second that woman leaves, she's been upgraded to a fancier hospital bed and she has 24-hour care. So she's there for a few months. And before she leaves, she gets informed that her name is Sandra Larrabee. She's 23 years old. She's a widow that her husband had died a few months previously of cancer. And that the fancy woman who came to see her was her sister-in-law. And that when she was found on the sidewalk, um, the only thing, someone had taken her purse and ran with it. And they eventually dumped the purse. And the only thing that was left in it was three keys. So then all of a sudden they're told she's, you know, you're physically recovered from your injuries. So we're going to send you home. So a fancy chauffeur comes and picks her up, brings her to this fancy ass mansion. And then she's told, oh, by the way, you have twin daughters. And the daughters are super happy to see her. But she's like, I have no clue who these kids are. And then feels really guilty. And she also begins to learn slowly that before her accident, she'd been acting really off. And they had suspected that it was because she was grieving the loss of her husband, that they had had this whirlwind romance that they were deeply in love with each other and then he died quickly but very painfully from cancer and then she started acting really weird she would leave on these excursions and no one knew where she was she was drinking all the time and she had bought a round trip global cruise ship ticket and then never showed up also that the daughters are very very happy to see her and are delighted that she's being very attentive to them because prior to her accident she was very very distant and basically barely paid attention to her kids at all so everyone in the family is shockingly nice to her and right from the jump i'm getting some get out vibes like i'm like something is going on (laughs) there everyone's way too nice to her except for her niece named nancy And Nancy is in her early 20s, and she is an absolute weirdo. She dresses really poorly. She's, like, not... She's kind of ugly. She spends all of her time in a laboratory that they built for her on the estate looking at bugs. (laughs) And she's the only one that keeps giving her side eye all the time. And finally, she's like, what's your deal? And she says, you know, you've changed. Like, you used to be so mean, and you were so mean to me. So I I think you're faking this amnesia thing so that people feel sorry for you. Um, I should hate you for how mean you were to me. And she's like, mm, okay. And she's, like, trying to get acclimated. and But every night when she goes to bed, she dreams of this very handsome blonde man. And nowhere has she seen this man before and he's not in the house and he's not who she's told her husband is. So she's real confused. And she is slow. Her memory's slowly coming back to her, but it's these weird things. Like she'd be like, Oh, I know what's behind the door of that room or, Oh, this is the drawer. I always put my purse in. So like these kind of weird things. And they're like, okay, good, good, good. Your memory's coming back to you. So she decides I'm going to go out shopping and just try to, you know, live my life and she's all of a sudden drawn to this bookstore and she doesn't know why and she goes in there and no one seems to recognize her and then she turns to leave and the blonde man from her dreams is there and she's like oh my god do i know you and he's like no sorry 
She's like, oh man. And then she's real thrown off because she's like, I'm telling you, literally this was the man from my dreams. The family decides to throw her a big old party, hoping that meeting all of her friends again will help bring back memories. She's like, I'm sorry, but I just truly do not know who any of these people are. And then in walks in the blonde man that she met oh. from her dreams and in the bookstore. And he says, I have to confess, I crossed, I, I crashed this party because I saw in the paper that they were having it. Um, I actually was the on-call physician when you were rushed to the hospital and I ended up leaving the hospital to start my own private practice. So I wasn't able to keep tabs on you. And I just really wanted to know if you were okay because I was just so concerned about you. And she's like, oh, wow, that's so nice. Um, thank you so much for looking up to me. He's smoking hot. She's like, I don't know. Maybe that's why I saw him in my dreams because he was one of the first faces that I saw when I was coming to. So she's like, oh, that makes sense. But maybe also it's a premonition that I'm like supposed to be with him. And... Then there's a whole bunch of shady shit that goes down. So she kind of is slowly sort of dating the doctor and he's really trying to be supportive and trying to help her recoup her memory. And there's people in the house who are very adamant for her to remember things. There are other, except for cranky weirdo Nancy niece, who again is like, I think you're making this all up and I could give a shit what happens to you. But everyone else is like really super nice to her but then weird shit keeps happening like hey sandra you know if you're gonna go into the safe make sure you close the door behind you and she's like i didn't go into the safe I'm like mm, maybe you're now losing your short-term memory then there's all of this like the brother-in-law is in charge of her money and he's like really sketchy about it and won't give her any details about how much money she has or what the money goes towards um no one knows this doctor who comes and says that, you know, he was one of the first doctors to look after her. So then she's like, well, it's like, what's going on? And then her, I guess we'll call him boyfriend now. So her boyfriend, Dr. Bunham, takes her driving to see if it'll jog her memory of anything. And all of a sudden she sees this apartment complex and she's like, stop, I know this, I know this, I know this. So they pull up and she's like, I don't know why, but something, I know this. And then she's like, oh, one of the keys that they found in my purse. And sure enough, the key opens up the mailbox and the key opens up an apartment door. But nobody in the building recognizes her. No one knows anything. So she's like, what the fuck is going on? Like if I live in this mansion, why do I also have this shitty apartment and this shitty, like what's going on? Then <laughs> she's leaving the apartment, kind of shaking her head, being like, what the fuck is going on? And she sees creepy weirdo Nancy hiding behind a bush. She's like, oh my God, Nancy's following us. Then they go to leave the apartment and her doctor boyfriend is like, oh my God, we're being followed. So they have to like sneak into like side roads and side roads. And then they go to dinner and they're like, what is going on? Out of the blue, as far as I'm concerned, the doctor's like, I love you. Let's get married. <laughs> And she's like, uh, well, I don't feel like that's really fair to you or to me because technically I'm a grieving widow, but I don't remember my ex-husband. And also, like, I feel like it would be a lot for my kids that I just came back and like, I don't even remember them. So like, ask me again later because I do really like you, but I just feel like the circumstances aren't great. And he's like, disappointed, but he's like, I get it. Drops her off at home. Next day, she finds out he's been in a car accident. Oh, turns out he was driven off a cliff. So someone like T-boned him until he flew off a cliff in the Hollywood Hills. She goes to see him. He's in a coma. She comes home 
and is like all distraught and there's all this commotion and they're like, it turns out one of the maids had been stealing from us. And she's like, oh, okay, well then I feel a little bit better about the fact that, you know, you, you said I did these things and I don't remember doing these things. Then she goes to go visit the doctor the next day. She's like, you know, determined I'm going to go see him every day. She uses her fancy, fancy money to get him transferred to a better hospital. And she wants round the clock security because both the police and her instinct is this was not an accident. We were followed. Then he was pushed off a cliff. Like someone is coming after us. So she's going to visit the doctor and she's waiting at a red light in her car, waiting to get there. And a woman crossing the street goes, oh my God, Liz, how are you? I haven't seen you in so long. You'll have to call me. She's like, what the fuck? I don't know who Liz is. Why does this woman think I'm Liz? What the shit is going on? Well, then she goes to the hospital because her her boyfriend, like she makes it to the hospital and they're like, oh my God, good news. He just woke up this morning. Amazing. And then he says, Sandra Larrabee, you are not Sandra Larrabee. <gasps> I'm going to read you the excerpt specifically where he tells her this because it is so soapy and delicious. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna read it to you verbatim. But then she's like, okay, I believe you because things are too fucking weird for it to be like it feels too like I know I have amnesia, but it just feels too surreal that I would forget my own children, that I would forget. But then how do the children, like, the children recognize me and they're, like, four years old. So, like, clearly they're not lying. They're children. And then there's different parts of the house that I remember. Like, I, I, I don't know what the fuck to believe at this point. So then she's like, I don't trust anybody. So she goes to the bank and she says, take away power of attorney from my brother-in-law and give it solely to the bank. And I'm going to write out a will and you're going to... Open it if something happens to me. And they're like, okay. But it turns out the will is actually her just describing everything that's happened and saying, I suspect someone's trying to come after me. Someone's trying to come after my boyfriend. So please investigate if I go missing or I wind up dead because I assure you it will be under suspicious conditions. She comes home and she's just going to confront the family and be like, what the fuck is going on? And she does. And then they tell her, yeah, you're right. So the real Sandra Larrabee did take that cruise ship. She did either commit suicide or was pushed off. We're not really sure. We don't really care. The body was never recovered. We were trying to figure out what to do because she had all of the estate. And so we were trying to figure out how the hell we could get the money and have it not just go to these twin girls because we're greedy motherfuckers. And then um, we found out that there was a woman in a hospital, a Jane Doe, who looked shockingly like... Sandra Larrabee. And so we figured, perfect. We bribed the doctor a million dollars and said, if you can help us get this woman healed up and give her to us, we will give you a million dollars. And we'll just pretend that this woman is the real Sandra Larrabee. And then we'll convince her to give her all of our money. And I mean, that's obviously a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then she's like, fuck you. I'm going to tell everybody the truth about what's going on. So what does she do? Like a true gothic romance. She runs away from the castle. Yes. (laughs) And they trap her and they're like, ha ha ha, the doctor's in on it too. If you don't call the bank and transfer the money back to us, the doctor is going to poison your boyfriend who's in hospital. And (gasps) we're going to kill him. So you either go along with this, which honestly, I don't know what your problem is. You were 
like some poor woman who had nothing and now you are inheriting this massive fortune and all you have to do is pretend to be someone else we'll still let you marry your boyfriend like do whatever you want we just want the money Mm-hmm. And so she's like, fuck, I don't want my boyfriend to die. I don't want these children to be harmed. So, okay, okay, I'll do it. And she calls the bank and says, I'd like to, re- you know, reverse everything I just said. Please come here. And then they're like, that's weird, but okay. Then they hear a knock at the door. They're like, okay, the bank is here. It's the fucking popo. Oh, no. And they're like, are you Sandra Larrabee? And she's like, supposedly. And they're like, no, you're not. We know you're not. Your name is Elizabeth Crowley. And the reason why we know this is because weirdo Nancy fucking snitched. And it turns out that the weirdo was so distraught by the fact that this woman was so kind because the real Sandra Larrabee was such a bitch. And this woman comes in and she's so nice and she's so nice to Nancy and she's trying to advocate for Nancy and saying, you know, Nancy's kind of weird, but you guys should be nicer to her. And so they try to get Nancy admitted to a mental hospital to shut her up. And instead, she's like, ha ha ha, and snitches on all of them. The police come. Everybody gets arrested. She finds out who she is, which is Elizabeth Crowley, a young, very nerdy, very sweet librarian, which is why she was attracted Aww. to that bookstore at one point because oh she used God. to go there all the time. And Aww. she gets to marry her doctor and it ends and she's pregnant and all of the bad people are in jail and the twins are being taken care of. And ta-da! Yay! Oh, I love it. Right? So, as we thought might be the case, it wasn't really romancy in the traditional sense of the word but it truly did like it ended on like a typical sort of romance vibe so i definitely think it fits the criteria of a gothic romance uh but you know there was zero out of five on the spice factor there was no sex i don't even i don't think they might have kissed at one point um there was no sexual tension throughout it definitely felt like agatha christie meets the young and the restless (laughs) That's like kind of the vibe I got. It was definitely like a mystery more than a romance. Um, but it was yeah. sort of sweet how it ended with, yeah, a bit of a romance. So that was The Larrabee Heiress. I thought it was so delightful. Um, it was certainly pulp and it's like a pulpy paperback, but very well written. And I would say the mm-hmm. last third, I was like cruising through the pages because I was just dying to know what happened. Like it truly was a page turner. Love it. You know, I'm so glad I didn't send you a dud. Oh, no. It was so good. Yeah. And it like was pulpy enough that I just was like, oh, my God, this is like candy. I'm just like eating this up. It was so good. (laughs) Yeah. Pulp. I mean, let's hear it for pulp novels because really it's good stuff. And you know what? That that carries over to my Dorothy Daniels novel, which was also a page turner and was great. Let's hear it. Uh, So mine was called Dark Haven by Dorothy Daniels and the like um, subtitle is a frightened Beth had to solve a terrible mystery of the menacing old mansion or die. Oh yeah. So, and in true fashion, mine is a blonde woman running away from a mansion in a field and she looks real spooked, (laughs) real spooked. Uh, (laughs) So my book opens the years uh, 1890. Uh, Beth is 
um, living in a little little cottage on the property of the Newcombs. The Newcombs um, are just this like wealthy family that she and her parents have kind of like grown up with. Um, the mother, her mother, like helps with Mrs. Newcomb and her like ailments, and her father is like he breeds racehorses, I guess. And so Judge Newcomb, who's the the patriarch of the Newcomb family. Um, has had Beth working in his office. So she's like a working gal in, in Victorian Virginia. Um, and so she's at the office with judge Newcomb and she gets an urgent call, um, that her mother has had some kind of episode and Beth is needed at home right away. So she rushes home and her mother, I guess has had a, like a heart condition for a really long time, but didn't want to worry anybody. Didn't want to tell anybody. Um, and so she's had another attack of some kind and she's, she's dying. She's going to die. And Beth is like, no, just hang on, just hang on. And they're like, no, no, I'm going to die. But before I die, I need you to promise me something. And she's like, what is it? What is it? And she says, my sister Celeste, um, is she's like, they, they know, they know who she is. She's not like, you know, a secret, but my sister Celeste, very famous actress. She's been widowed for two years now. I want you to go and stay with her. She'll take care of you um, and you might help her ease her grief. And she's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And she's like, no, go, go to Celeste, go to your auntie Celeste. And so she's like, I promise I'll go. So mom dies and the newcombs are like, you know, we love you like our own daughter come live with our family and we will take care of you. Um, you know, and you'll be part of our home. And she's like, I am so touched, but I have to go find my aunt Celeste. And so she sends a letter to her aunt Celeste saying, I'm coming. So wait for me. Um, and she hops on a train and she heads from Virginia to New York city. And she finds out in New York city that actually her aunt lives kind of on the outside, about an hour away from the city itself and like the countryside. And so she's on a train and she notices this, like the train is just filled with people and they're all holding like picnic baskets and wreaths and garlands and stuff. And she's like, oh, that's really weird. So she gets off in this little town where her aunt lives and um, she goes to get a carriage and she sees all these people, you know, disembark from the train with their garlands and their picnic baskets also getting into this big line of carriages and she takes the last one and she's like oh i'm going to dark haven where uh, celeste ward lives and he's like oh, i figured you know but why didn't you get in the carriage with the other people you know, it'll be cheaper and she's like i don't know what you're talking about and he's like yeah they're all going there too to pay their respects and she's like respects to what and he's like well leland Leland Ward, who was Celeste's husband who passed away. And it turns out that Leland was a huge philanthropist, like so incredible. He, all that, everything that he did was to, you know, donate money and, and help build churches and towns and hospitals and stuff. And he was always doing something like that. And so when he died very tragically and very suddenly, um, they erected this huge pink marble tomb on the Dark Haven property. Um, and on it is like a marble sculpting of Leland. And so people every Sunday come and they pay their respects and they have like little picnics on the lawn near this tomb. And then they all go and see uh, Celeste and shake her hand and, and um, give their sympathies. And that's been happening for two years. 
So she gets in the carriage, she goes over to the property and sure enough, there's like hundreds of people there all in this big line waiting to shake hands with um, Celeste. So she goes to just kind of like go down the hill to see her aunt and she's stopped by this big man with a rake and he's like, nobody cuts the line, get back in the line, go. And she's like, no, I'm, I don't know what this is, but I am Beth. I'm here to see my aunt Celeste. And he's like, you're not wanted here. She sent you a letter to say not to come. And he's, she sent you money and you're just here to steal her money. And she's like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so she kind of scoots past him and she heads over to her aunt and her aunt's like, oh my God, I can't believe you're here. Like, did you not get my letter? And she's like, no, I didn't get your letter. And she's like, you shouldn't be here. This isn't a place for a young lady. Um, you know, but go in the house and eat and I'll join you and, and we'll talk. So she is really hurt because she's like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? But she had decided, you know, she wasn't going to go back to the Newcombs. She was going to go to New York City and like get a job. And maybe if her aunt doesn't want her there, maybe because she was a famous actress and her husband was like a famous businessman that they can give her some connections in New York and she can, you know, go to work there. So her aunt um, joins her and she's like, look, this is just a really sad, dreary place. I'm so busy with my husband's business dealings um, that, you know, this isn't a place for you. And she says, you know, well, I understand. And, you know, maybe you can set me up with some contacts in New York um, and then I'll go. And she's like, okay, sure. So she's like, but please stay the night and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll deal with this in the morning. So while she's at the house in Darkhaven, it's this big old mansion. She meets Marie, who is Celeste's maid. And then she meets um, the two kind of like housekeepers. So there's Walter and there's Drusy. And Walter is the guy that accosted her in the yard. And Drusy is his wife. And they're like the fucking worst. Like they're just mean. <laughs> they hate her. They don't want Beth there. They think she's there to like steal money or, or like try to like inherit the property or something. And they're just total assholes to her. And so... As the story goes on, uh, Beth, you know, is speaking with Marie and Marie's like, oh, you know, it would be so nice if you could stay here. Um, her name is Marie LeDuc, oh, which I love, by the way. Fantastic. Marie LeDuc. Fancy, fancy, yeah. <laughs> And uh, she's like, I really wish you could stay, you know, and she's telling her the stories about when her aunt was still a theater actress because she was her maid then too. And like how it's really sad that her aunt is kind of you know, loved her husband so much that in his untimely demise, she's committed to doing all this and she retired from the theater and all this, blah, blah, blah. So that night, while um, Beth is trying to get some sleep, she hears like footsteps like above her. And she's like, well, that's really weird that I'm hearing footsteps. So she goes to try and discover the source of these footsteps because they won't let up and she wants to sleep. And it takes her to like this, I guess like veranda or patio or something, a walkway up at the top of the house. And there's nobody there. And she's just like, oh, that's really weird. Like, I'm sure I heard something. And then as she's about to leave, she hears this like maniacal laughter coming from below and she can't see anybody, but she can hear it. And she's freaked out and she's like, fuck. So she goes back to bed really scared. And the next day she's going to have some breakfast with her aunt and her aunt says, I want you to stay a week. Like I'm, I'm really busy. Um, you know, but in the interest of like my dead sister's memory and her wishes, like, please just stay with me so I can get to know you. And then, you know, it'll give me time to set up contacts and stuff for you. So she's like, okay, great. I would love that. Um, so she's kind of like checking out the grounds while her aunt's working. And she discovers like in the forest, this, like what they call like the stone house. 
And it's this like weird like stone structure and all the windows are boarded up and the door is locked and she's like, what the hell? So she goes to look at it. And then Walter shows up and is like, get out of here. You're not allowed to be here, blah, blah, blah. And like, he's constantly threatening her. And she's like, I don't know what the fuck your deal is, but like, whatever. And so she goes back to her aunt. She's like, what's the deal with the stone house? And she's like, yeah, I can't let you go near there. That's actually where Leland burned to death. Um, and I use it now to meditate. So yeah. So she's like, please don't go there. You're forbidden to go there. Um, and she's, and she's like, okay, yeah, sure. Like I'll stay away. That's okay. So as this goes on, you know, she's getting to know her aunt a little better. And every now and then her aunt kind of like confides in her that like, she's actually really miserable. Like she's been wearing morning clothes for two years, which is like not typical of the Victorian era. And, um, every Sunday she has to do this thing. And then she's always dealing with like people looking for money and lawyers and bankers. And she's doing this every day and she's exhausted and she's miserable. Um, and so she reveals to her, her niece that like, she's like, I really like, I just want to get away from here for a little bit. Like I would love to just go on a holiday. And she's like, let's do it. Let's, let's leave here. And we're going to go on a holiday together and it'll be great. And she's like, Oh my God. Yeah, this is great. That's like really excited. She's like, I'm going to tell my aunt. I'm going to get to get her away from this place. That's making her so sad. It's going to be great. And then that night, Beth hears that like walking around again. And she's at this point, she's convinced that it's maybe Walter or Drusy trying to scare her because they really don't want her there. And they've been making her life really miserable. And so as she looks at her window and she can see the big giant gross marble tomb in the distance, she sees somebody on the tomb and she's like, not sure, but like it's somebody in a cape with a big hat and it, they're like beckoning her to come to them. And she's like, this has got to be Drusy or Walter. And I'm going to catch them because this is horse shit. So she gets up to go out to the, to the tomb. And then as she's outside, she realizes somebody is coming at her. Whoever this was in the cave is, is coming after her. And so she has to run away. So she's running through the forest and you know, she, she knows this person wants to kill her. And so she's running and she's running. And then finally, like, she can't get out of this situation. So she's able to find like a big uh, branch and she's able to pull it back and like whip this person in the gut and like send them flying. And so then she gets away and she's terrified at this point. She's like, oh my God, somebody's trying to kill me now. And she's scared to tell her aunt because her aunt already has like so much going on and she's, you know, just really, you know, overworked and stuff. She doesn't want to worry her with the fact that somebody on her property is trying to murder her niece. Uh, <laughs> but then the next day, the next day her aunt's like, I, I'm sorry. I, you know, I'm sorry. I, I got really excited about um, going on vacation, but we can't go. I'm really sorry. Um, but I really enjoy your company here and I would really love for you to stay on and, you know, just stay with me a little bit longer. And she's like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. But at this point she's getting really tired of the house because not only are the housekeepers like trying to like attack her and annoy her. Cause she's convinced it was one of them that tried to attack her in the woods. Um, she's forbidden to go near this like stone house and there's obviously secrets and stuff happening and her aunt's really miserable, but she can't get her aunt away from it. And it's just, it's really not fun there. She's really unhappy. And then one day she is, um, just like hanging out with her aunt while her aunt's receiving this procession on a Sunday. And there's a man that shows up and he is smoking hot. And 
Walter spies him and he's like, you were told not to come here, get out. Um, and he's like, sir, you shall not threaten me with your rake. And he's like, watch me. And so then this guy like fucking takes the rake from him and he's like, I'm not scared of you. And so Beth is just like, oh my God, like this guy stood up to Walter. Holy shit. <laughs> and so she decides, she's like, well, I need to find out who this guy is because like, obviously he's here with a purpose. And so, um, Celeste has like gotten really like kind of like sick in the sun and she decides to go in and lie down. And so, um, Beth's kind of taking over the pr procession. And then this, this man comes over and he's like, Hey, um, where's your aunt? And she's like, Oh, well she went inside to lie down, but maybe I can help you. And he's like, my name is Clay Fleming and I request an audience with your aunt. Um, she knew my father, Stuart Fleming. If you tell her our names, like she will see us. Can you please go ask? And she's like, I'll do my best. So she goes and she tells her aunt, like, there's this guy, Clay Fleming here, his father, Stuart Fleming. He wants to talk to you. And she's like, oh, that's really too bad. I'm too tired. I'm too sick. I can't, but maybe you can go find out what he wants. So she has Clay come inside. She's like, what's going on? And he's like, well, my father and your aunt knew each other when she was still a theater actress. And um, he is a businessman and he went to China and then he left China and came back here, but said he was going to go visit Celeste. Um, and we haven't heard from him since. And she's like, oh, that's really weird. Um, I, haven't, I, don't, I haven't seen him. There's nobody here. And he's like, well, can you please just like go tell your aunt that he's missing? And I just want to know like if she has seen him. Um, he's been gone for two years. And she's like, okay, yeah, I'll go and ask her. And she's like, no, I haven't. That's I haven't seen him. Like, I, I don't know what's going on. So she goes to Clay and she's like, well, my aunt says she hasn't seen him and maybe like, you know, if there's anything else we can do. And he's like, well, I'm going to come back tomorrow. Maybe you can convince her to like have an audience with me. And then maybe I can take you for like a little drive. Like, do you want to do that? And she's like, Oh my God. Yeah. Um, so, um, later that day she is, um, kind of in her room and Marie, the maid's kind of hanging out with her. And she's like, I saw you talking to that guy. Like, what's his deal? And she's like, Oh, he's so-and-so's son. And he was friends with my aunt. And, you know, I think there was something happening there. Cause she seemed really sad when I mentioned his name. Um, he's looking for his dad. His dad hasn't been seen like in a really long time. And she's like, Oh, that's really too bad. You know? Um, and it, it's so weird, you know, now that you're here and this other guy showing up, she's like, it's really weird. Like we haven't had any visitors since your, your uncle died. Um, and you know, your uncle's really punctual and like, he was set to come home. Um, you know, the, like weeks after the day he did return. And so it was really unlike him to come home early, but that's the day he died and it's really tragic. And so it's, it's kind of nice to see more people showing up, but you know, your aunt's kind of weird about it. And she's like, yeah, she, she, she is weird about it. So the next day, um, Beth is like hanging out on a rock near the river and then Clay fucking rolls up in a rowboat and he's like, <laughs> Hey girl, what's, what's up? And she's like, why did, why are you here on a boat? And he's like, well, I didn't, I didn't think uh, Walter would open the gate for me. So I thought I'd, I'd sneak, I'd sneak over on this boat. And she's like, okay. And as they're walking, they run into the stone house again. And she's like, oh, that's the stone house. And he's like, it's in the woods. And she's like, yeah, he's like, that's really weird. And he could see all like the fire damage outside of the door. And he's like, oh, the door has been replaced. He's like, that's really weird. And she's like, yeah, it is weird. And so finally clay is able to have an audience with celeste and she's he's like you know i remember seeing you when i was a kid and um you know 
it turns out like my dad sent you, we have a copy of this letter that he sent you saying he was coming to visit. And, you know, we just want to know if you, I just want to know if you've seen him, the police are going to close the, the, the case. And I just, I'm just trying to like do my best to figure out the mystery and know like if he's alive or not. And she's like, you know, I never got that letter and I'm really sorry. Um, you know, but we, we loved each other and it's just, he wanted me to give up the theater and I was selfish and I decided I couldn't do that. And so he's, you can tell she's like really has a lot of regret about like not choosing to be with him. Um, but it is what it is. So then, um, they go on their little cart ride and he asks Beth, he's like, I still feel like something is going on. Do you mind taking my father's picture and asking the servants if they've seen him at any point? And she's like, okay. So she takes this picture and she's asking the servants and they're like, I don't know who that is. Like, I don't know. And um, then she shows it to Marie and she's like, Marie, do you know who this is? And Marie's like, I've seen him. And she's like, oh, really? Like when? Was it before or after, you know, he died? Uh, and she's like, or like before the uncle died. And she's like, I don't remember, but I remember seeing him on the grounds twice. Um, you know, so I just. But I, but I can't remember when it was and I'll, I'm going to think about it and I'll let you know. And she's like, okay. Um, and so the next day Clay is supposed to come back. And when she was talking to Marie, she thought she heard somebody outside the door, but when she went to go look, there was nobody there. And she's like, okay, that's weird. But then the next day she can't find Marie. Mm. Yeah. And at this point, Beth has already had like attempts on her life multiple times um, and she was convinced it was Walter, but like, she's not sure anymore. Her aunt believes her, but like not a lot they can do. Cause she's like, you know, the police aren't going to believe you over Walter classic. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they don't report anything. They just leave it. Uh, but now Marie is missing and she, and, and Beth is freaking out. Cause not only is Marie like her best friend, like Marie was the one who said she saw Stuart. So she's looking around, she's looking around and she remembered that Marie liked to go walk down by the water where you know clay showed up in his little boat <laughs> but there's a boathouse there with this like really rickety pier and marie had been like don't promise me you're never gonna go on that pier like all the wood is rotten and it's really dangerous like don't go there i almost fell in once it's scary but she decides like she's like well, i have to go look in the boathouse like maybe maybe she's in there or something you know something happened maybe she hurt herself and she hasn't been able to get back so she she does brave the pier to go and look in this boathouse. And fortunately, like Marie's not in there. Um, she's, she's, she's not there. So she's like, okay. So as she's heading back. She notices that like the corner of the pier by the bank is broken. And so she goes over and she sees like some fabric. And when she pulls on it, it's actually <gasps> Marie. She's drowned under the pier. And so at this point, Marie's or Beth is like, okay, somebody killed Marie. There's been foul play. Like she's freaking out. And she, runs through the forest screaming and crying and then runs into clay who is there to like pick her up for a visit. And he goes and like, he pulls Marie out of the water and he's like, yeah, she, she did. She did. All right. And they're like, we have to tell Celeste and we have to talk to her about what happened. So they just leave the body there. So they can go talk to mm. Celeste before they call the cops. Yeah. Just cash. And then, um, they're like, Hey, look, Marie told us this. And so now they're starting to like not trust Celeste and they realize like she knows something is up but she just like can't say it she can't say whatever's up so they end up calling the cops and they end up um getting the coroner and stuff they're gonna have um like a funeral for marie the next day um and her aunt's she's like 
Beth's like, I'm going to, I have to leave. I'm going to, I'm going to go with Clay. We're going to go to New York or whatever. We're going to be married. I'm going to leave. And she's like, okay, that's fine. Just like stay one more night with me and we will go to Marie's funeral together. And then I'll say goodbye to you. And she's like, okay. So they go to the funeral and, um, she, at the end of the funeral, Beth goes with Clay to this inn. And at this point he's like, you know, I think something's weird about Leland. Like, yeah, he's dead, but like, you know, I feel like there's some weird, odd business dealings and maybe more people would have more information about like him and like maybe what happened to my dad. So he decides like, I'm going to run to New York real fast and I'll come back, but don't leave your room and I'll come back and I'll, and I'm going to go and investigate the property because I think there might be answers in the stone house. And she's like, okay. So she's kind of pacing her room wondering and then she starts to like piece things together and she's like wait a minute marie said that um the that celeste had no visitors after leland died which means then that Stuart came while leland was still alive and she said you know she starts to realize that like obviously he loved her so like what if he showed up and then he killed leland and he's living in this house as like her secret lover. And she's like, oh, my God, like, I need to go find out. So she goes back to the property in the middle of the night and she um, decides to go confront Celeste. Like, this is what I figured out. Like, what do you have to say about it? And as she gets into the house, she hears a man talking. And she's like, who is that? So she goes upstairs and Celeste is being reprimanded by none other than her supposed to be late husband, <gasps> Leland, who was never what? dead at all. Yeah. So he's there like tearing her a new strip because like she's starting to like defy him. And what happened, it turns out, was that he came home early to discover that Stuart was on the property trying to talk to Celeste. So he killed Stuart and burned his body to hide the evidence. And so Stuart's remains are buried in the pink tomb and not Leland's. But Leland, in an effort to like preserve his um like his legacy and his and his like um well, you know, like how people see him, he yeah. his reputation. He decided to like maintain this lie that he was dead, and he is kind of pulling the strings from behind the scenes. And so Drusy and Walter knew about what had happened, which is why they were so shitty to everybody because they were like, "We have power," and they had been helping him to try and like scare off Beth uh, because she was too nosy, and then also make sure that. Um, Celeste is still like preserving his legacy while still making sure like all the business dealings and stuff while he's like dead, quote unquote. And she's like, well, you didn't have to murder Marie. And he's like, I did because she told Beth about seeing Stuart. So it's like revealed that like he killed her and he killed Stuart. And so Beth is like, I got to go get Clay. But maybe if I go to the stone house, I can get some proof that he's actually alive. So she goes to the stone house and when she enters the stone house, she realizes that like there's a bunch of self portraits that he's been painting of himself in there, like just a ton of them. Um, and she was like, oh yeah, there was never any portraits of him in the house. And yet like the, the, the sculpture of him on his tomb is like a perfect likeness, but he wouldn't have had a death mask if he was like burned to death. So she's like piecing all this together and she's like, oh, I can't believe I didn't see it sooner. So She's in this room full of paintings and then she's about to leave and then Leland catches her and he's like, oh, hey, girl. And she's, you know, so the the whole like 
talk of like where he reveals his his evil plan happens and then he just decides to like fucking attack her so he locks the door to this like stone it's this there and he takes a fucking lantern that's lighting this room and throws it at her yeah and so he's basically playing fireball with her in a room full of turpentine rags (laughs) and lanterns and he's just like chucking these things at her and then clay's trying to get the door open and she's like i can't get out and so she's like well i'm gonna die now whoopsie daisy um and then leland catches on fire and he's like a human inferno (laughs) and so she passes out and then she wakes up on the lawn and like everything's revealed and there's a happy ending because celeste is finally free and they decide to like keep leland's remains in the like stonehouse tomb and just like leave him there and she's free and she's rich as hell and Beth gets to go off and marry Clay and they have a baby and it's a little girl and they call the little girl oh, Marie. after the little housekeeper. Yeah, I know. And you know what? It, it was great. It was, I like historical, like, I like Regency films. I like, like Pride and Prejudice. I love like all of those historical films. And this reminded me a lot about like a lot of that. Um, and it was really morbid and creepy. And I thought maybe... Um, I thought maybe like the aunt had gone insane and like she was really this the person in the cape who was trying to kill Marie and I thought maybe there was like something else going on and it was I thought maybe it was Clay like misdirection the whole book love it um, very well written very very well written and at no point was um, was like the main character like too feminine to like do anything like she was solving the mystery she's like mary kate and ashley (laughs) you know but in one person and you know she's constantly like i don't know like i don't know how your story was written but mine was like very true to the era so like the way she talked and the way she thought to herself um was like really formal and like very much like Pride and Prejudice and stuff. And it was just, it was good. And then by the end of it, um, yeah, I just like couldn't stop reading because it was just like drama, 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 drama. Who's going to die? Drama. And, like It was like I wanted to solve the mystery. The only thing I will say about these books, though, is that the text was so tiny <laughs> that even though my book was 150 pages, it took me hours and hours to read this book because I can't see it. <laughs> I can't read it. Uh, I don't know if I need one of those like Mamere magnifying glass squares for my books, but I would, I have a whole bunch of Dorothy Daniels books and I want to read the rest because they're so good, but I want to save them for the next time when we do hot goth too, because it was so much fun. So good. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Same. And I, yeah, I Um, love that yours was equally as good. And that similarly like to mine that it wasn't like, oh, the second you describe like a very beautiful woman, you're like, she's going to die and or she's dumb. But in fact, she's not. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then like anyone who tried to gaslight any of the women characters had it coming to them. That was also in mine too. Um, yeah. Love. Yeah. So like subtle feminists bent to these books. Yeah. And you know what? There was no spiciness in mine either. And I was, I was, I remember I was texting you. I was like, there's no romance in mine. There's no romance. So I was very happy when like some romance happened. Um, so I don't have a spiciness factor, but I think we need to come up with a rating scale for gothic romance novels. And I'm going to I'm going to say um, Haunted Houses. Mm. I want to say Haunted Houses. So I'm going to give mine, um, even though there were no ghosts, right? It was still a spooky house haunted with memories. So I'm going to say five out of five Haunted Houses for Ooh, mine. I will say um, 
I'm going to say three out of five haunted houses for mine, for sure. Because mine definitely had nice. some of that vibe, but it was definitely mine bent more towards soapy. Um, but also because yeah. mine was, I mean, mine was written in the 70s, but it was set in present day. So it was set in like 70s Hollywood. Oh. Uh, yeah, so it definitely okay. had more of a that kind of a vibe to it, more soapy than creepy as yours was. But sure. Mine was 65. Oh wow! So, Yours was written like a good October, nineteen sixty-five. A good ten years before mine, almost. Yeah, yeah. My book was sixty cents <laughs> at one point. Oh, mine was ninety-five cents. Ooh, went up. Oh, that's that inflation, inflation, though. <laughs> that is inflation. <laughs> so, what in the heck are you going to read for us? Just a really short passage. It, it's my favorite. It was my favorite thing in the book. So it's it's where. Um, Leland is confronting uh, Beth in the stone house and he's just like going nuts and he's going to murder Woo! her. Um, real short, real sweet. It's a, a good read. Here we go. passage. <laughs> yes. Also because uh, Beth is from Virginia, I am pleased to say I get to do it. Oh, I'm so excited. I haven't heard one of your accents in so long. I know the whole book is in like from her perspective. Ooh. So here we go. He threw back his head and laughed. It was horrible to hear and involuntary. My hands went to my ears to shut out the sound. I had performed that gesture so many times in the last week that it was automatic. But even as my ears covered, I could hear a pounding on the door, and so did Leland Ward. He turned towards it. The sounds were muffled, as was the voice, for the door was thick, but it was clay, and he was calling my name. I almost ran to the door, but if I had, it would have been necessary for me to pass closely to the man who wanted to kill me. I could hear Clay calling my name, continuing his pounding on the door and rattling the knob. It was accompanied by the demonic, demonical laughter of this lunatic. Then all was silence. I heard, uh, I called out Clay's name, called it over and over again as loudly as I could. There was terror and desperation in my voice and I knew it was all in vain. Clay could not gain entrance to this house of horror. He could not reach me, nor could I get to him. Slowly, Leland Ward advanced on me, his smile ugly. The smile of a madman. He was insane. He had to be, but that didn't lessen the shock or the knowledge that he was going to kill me. I got, I got around the table and found myself between two rows of paintings. Leland followed, and now he quickened his steps, and though he was not sure-footed, I could not hope to escape him. I ran to the end of the row, with him following, laughing his mad laugh. Then I hastened along the back of the room, past the rows of paintings and reaching a clearing which gave me a view of the door. I started to run towards it. However, Leland guessed my purpose and he ran in the opposite direction at the end of the room, picked up a lamp and threw it at me just as I reached the large table. I jumped to one side in an effort to avoid it, but in doing so, I struck the large table with the four lamps set precariously on its edge. The lamp Leland threw hit a canvas and broke drop into the floor. It ignited some rags and flames, leaped to the still wet oil canvas, which started to burn. In my haste to avoid being struck, I knocked the table over. That added to the inferno, for the lamps broke and the turpentine-soaked rags seemed to explode. Or the explosion may also have been caused by some cans which sat under the table and which undoubtedly contained more turpentine. Suddenly, the room was an inferno. However, by the time I was at the door turning the knob and trying to pull it open, at the same time knowing the hopelessness of it, Though I wasn't aware of it, sobs racked my throat, for I was now more terrified of being consumed by fire than by meeting death at the hands of Leland Ward. I, pounding on the door, screaming Clay's name again and again. Then I heard a horrible shriek. It was that of a man, and I turned. Through the smoke and flame, I could see Leland clutching at his throat. He was a living torch, 
As I watched heavy, acrid smoke blotted him out. I started to cough as my lungs filled with the fumes. Then I felt myself slipping to the floor. I had tried, but I could not escape. Leland, a living torch, had the key and Clay had gone, undoubtedly never hearing my cries for help. It was ended. Leland had succeeded in killing me, just as he said he would, but it hadn't happened as he expected. He'd had no time to plan this time, and he had been caught in his own trap. But I had been caught with him. My last conscious thought was of the man I loved, Clay Fleming, who had warned me against returning to Darkhaven. I had foolishly disobeyed in the belief I knew the answer. I was paying with my life. And that took, that's like, that's one page of teeny tiny script, but that's scary, right? uh... It was really scary. Like there was in 1965, Dorothy Daniels wrote about a man on fire (laughs) trying to kill somebody in a room full of his own portrait. Like it's spooky shit, spooky shit. But I, I want to hear what you've got. Oh, mine is soapy, soapy goodness. So what I'm going to read to you is a short passage where her doctor boyfriend is recovering from the car accident. So what we now know is that the family drove him off the road because similar to your book, if you get too suspicious. You start asking too many questions. We got to get rid of you. So her doctor boyfriend is asking questions and encouraging her to figure out and, you know, drives her to that apartment building and everything. And so she is talking to him in a moment where he's sort of woken up from his coma and he's still very weak, but he really needs to get this out before he collapses again in a dramatic uh, moment of being so tired from his coma. Here we go. Mine is set in LA. So I don't really have any accents. Sadly, I say sadly, but I'm sure our listeners are like, Oh, thank Christ. I can't listen to her bad accents anymore. Nobody (laughs) says that, but go on. going to talk he says in his low almost whispering voice don't ask me to stop i know what i'm saying my mind is clear you have to understand that i understand darling you are not sandra larrabee he said (gasps) how can you say that i asked after a stunned moment the twins what about them when you were brought into the hospital we did a complete physical on you We had to. We didn't know how much damage had been done. But you never gave birth to those twin girls or any child. You're a virgin. (laughs) She's a virgin. (laughs) Fortunately, there was a chair beside the bed, for the shock of what I just heard made me giddy. After I was seated, I said, Is that why I couldn't feel any rapport with the twins? Not necessarily. You told me how you remembered where the playroom was that Larry Larrabee used as a child. You knew the door to Janet's suite. You placed your purse in a drawer you habitually used for that purpose. Do you know who I am? I think I do. I believe also the girl who called your name recognized you, and your first name must be Elizabeth. Check the marker plates on the car in the garage at that apartment house we found. I will. When did you know I was not Sandra Larrabee? His answer came after a few moments of thought. When I returned to the hospital and was told who you were, I was puzzled to learn you were a widow. When I crashed the dinner party and saw you moving about with the twins and was told they were yours, I knew for a certainty there was something wrong, that it was impossible for you to be the mother of those twins or any child. Why didn't you tell me? I asked. 
Forgive me, but I didn't know if you were playing a game too. I now know you're a pawn in some kind of game the Larrabees are playing. At least one of them is guilty, but I'd say the lot of them are. Please don't go back. But if I'm not Sandra Larrabee, and I'm convinced now that I'm not, where is she? Probably dead. That's why. That's why you might not go back. Da da da! Oh my god. So, you know, I'm going to wow. apologize to the doctor, the good doctor, because I thought he was sketch. I thought he was sketch the whole time. I'm like, you know, no one else recognize you. You only were her doctor for a bit. You're following around, blah, blah, blah. Nope. Turns out he was the only good one. And the creepy weirdo ugly niece was also the good one. So the moral of this is don't trust your instincts. <laughs> <laughs> Don't judge a book by its cover unless you read romance. Then pick it by the cover. A hundred percent success rate when you do it that way. So that was our Dorothy Daniels gothic hotties week. I had a blast. Yeah, I did too. Even though it took me forever and I kept pushing our recording (laughs) time. Because I'm not done yet. I don't know how I'm not finished yet. But um, like hot tip, if you decide to read... Um, an old Dorothy Daniels book, get yourself some kind of magnifying glass. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they going to be, it's going to be real painful. It's going to be real yeah. painful. Um, or get somebody with better eyesight to read to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that. There's that. Good call. I mean, just find, find a lover like you would back in the day where you would sit on each other's laps in a park somewhere and one of them reads to you. It's very beautiful. Oh. Wasn't that also the premise of a that book sounds- slash movie starring Kate Winslet about someone reading to a woman who couldn't read? Yeah. Turns out that... Did you ever see that movie? The reader? Wasn't she like a <laughs> I was going to say, turns out plot twist, she was a Nazi who ends up getting charged yeah, with war crimes. Because she, she, she would get the people, the, 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 the Jews in the camps to read Yeah, to and then her. she gets this like little boy or teenage boy to read to her um, because she says that she's illiterate and such. And yeah, it turns out she's also a Nazi. It's actually a really good book. I recommend it. <laughs> but whenever someone talks about reading to someone, I never go. I either go to like a total, like I said, Victorian, like I am wooing someone out in the park in the garden or full Kate Winslet as a Nazi. I mean, there's no in between for me. Oh my God. <laughs> I go like, I go full, like either little women where like Joe has to read to her like scary old aunt all the time till she falls asleep. Um, Winona Ryder being the one true Joe and I'll die on that hill. Um, <laughs> or like Anna Green Gables. Oh. Like just fucking reading our little heart out. True, oh, true, true, true. Good call. Yeah, we love a good gingered yeah. um, Prince Edward Island heroine. heroine. <laughs> well, we're- oh, Anna Green Gables. I, yeah, I was bring like, Anna with an E, bring her back for Renee. This is the one hill she is willing to die on that she will not rest until Anne with the E is brought back. CBC, if you're listening, make better fucking choices, okay? Anytime Julie receives some sort of accolade, I remind her that it's her duty. The only thing I'll ever ask of her is to get in with the knee back on the air. And it's not happened yet, but you know what? I'm enjoying Thank you. Uh, and I will say, forewarning to our listeners, next week we're going in a completely different direction because it's Easter. It's oh, springtime. No. Easter up in this bitch. I am not going to tell you the books that we are reading next week because they are <laughs> wacky and you're going to want to join us. But yes, it is Easter. Spring is around the corner. Very exciting. So we're going to go from hot goths to pastel colors next week. You're not going to want to miss it. It is going to be hilarious. I 
guarantee you, I haven't even started my book, and based solely on the title and the cover, I am ready for mm-hmm. a riot per minute as I go through that book. Oh my god, same. Same, and I am so excited. So, on that note, will you sing us out, you <laughs> dove? Sure will. Ravage love! Ravage love! Bye-bye! Bye! Artwork for the podcast was created by Karen McKnight. Special thanks to Press Start to Join for production assistance. For gaming and tech news, search Press Start to Join or on social media at PS, the number two, J Show. Connect with us online at Ravage Love on Instagram and by email at ravagelove.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you.